If you will turn to your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 today. Let me read that text before we look at it this morning. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Habakkathirim in the plain of Onam. And they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work, and it will be not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in allowing us, God, to, to have your word in our language and to be able to open it and to read it. And Father, as we talked about in Sunday school, it's so important that we meditate upon your word, that we consider, that we we think about it, and especially as it applies to our lives. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, God, to uh, enable us to, to ponder and to, to question and to think about the things that your word says and how they apply to our lives. 
But we pray for your spirit, God, to open our eyes where we might be blind um, to ways that we must, we should trust you by faith. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us through the, the series of Ezra and Nehemiah, you would understand that I wanted to entitle this sermon, Enduring Opposition, Take 8 or Take 9 or Take 10, whatever it is. You know, that we've been talking a lot about opposition. Um, it seems to be a topic that keeps coming up over and over and over. And part of that is, is Satan is determined and perseveres in opposing God and His church. And I'm sure there are some of you who are here today that have experienced that opposition. That that is part of your life. That seems to be where you live. I know as your pastor that many of you are encountering wave after wave of opposition and temptation and trials in your life. And there's times when it just seems like you don't even get through whatever it is you're going through and the next wave seems to hit and to come upon you. And it can be rather discouraging and easy to give up. And, and I know that because I felt that way myself. Um, I, you know, there's, there's so many times that I said, you know, for a penny, I would give my job up in a heartbeat. You know, it's just, there's times of just great discouragement. And they usually come on Mondays, you know, after a great and glorious time of worship with the Lord on the day before. Unfortunately, that's not uncommon with, with pastors. But that's true of all of us. We, we wrestle and we struggle. And that's why passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 can mean so much. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And oftentimes that's quoted in weddings and stuff, which it does apply, I guess, in wedding situations. But it's really talking about the context of the church and just the blessings it can be to have others that are there to, to help us as we go through those times. You know, you've often heard it said that there's a safety in numbers, and that's true. And we're going to see that in our text today, but maybe in a way that may be different than we oftentimes use that. So let us just jump into the text. And, and the, the sermon title is very simple. There's really two points that we want to look at today. And the first is this, that the enemy seeks to do harm. The enemy seeks to do harm. And we see that in verses 1 through 9. Um, the thing that, uh, that Nehemiah seeks to do is uh, of building the wall. It's not just merely a task. It's not just something that he chose to do, but it is a holy task that God had set his heart upon doing. Uh, we see that in chapter 1, you know, as uh, 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 there's a God-given concern that Nehemiah has for the people of God and for what is going on amongst them. So much so that it compels him in chapter 2 to go to the king and ask for permission to come and to rebuild the city of the wall to Jerusalem. And then we see that calling in chapter 2, verse 18. And while the things uh, that, that we do for the Lord uh, may seem like uh, what Nehemiah does, sort of insignificant, in our eyes, often they are big in the sight of the Lord. And what Nehemiah was doing was not just rebuilding the walls. 
he was uh, bringing uh, honor and glory once again to the Lord and also working to build up the community of God's people as well. And that's what we see in Nehemiah 6. And as a result of that, the enemies of God are taking note of the work that God's people are doing. And, you know, um, I, it's interesting. I, I have said this sort of jokingly, but I oftentimes wonder if it is the case. You know, I, I, I almost want to say, you know, if your life is very comfortable and, and there's really no ripples or difficulties in your life, then come join us at Kirk of the Plains. That will all change. You know, and, and I say that just in the sense that I do think that there's, uh, that Satan does come against us when we're doing the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't attend Kirk of the Plains, they're not doing the work of the Lord. But I am so appreciative of your fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ and your diligence to walk in godliness and to love the Lord and to do his work. And because of that, there's often this opposition that comes. Now, I want us, under this first point, sort of a sub-point, I want us to look at the players who are seeking to stop Nehemiah. We've been living with these people for a while. We know their names, Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem. But I don't know that I've really ever stopped and told you who these men were and uh, what their part is in terms of seeking to uh, stop the building of the wall. Sambalat was a Hornite. Uh, he comes with a Babylonian name, and he's from Beth Horam, which was situated 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And he's a very ambitious political person. Uh, he's a ruler, somewhat of a governor, so he has status and he has authority. He's married to the daughter of Eliashib, okay, who is the high priest in Jerusalem. That's significant. We'll come back to that in chapter 13, verse 28. You'll see where that comes into play. But Sambalat is, is likely of mixed race, as best we can tell. But he was married into a Jewish family. And so he's a political leader who lives 18 miles away and feels threatened by this wall that's going up in, in his backyard. And therefore, he stands against Nehemiah. Now, Tobiah, that's interesting, it's a Jewish name. And he has connections in Israel as well. His son married the daughter of a high-ranking Jewish official. And his primary interest is protecting his political position. So here, like Sambalat, he's sort of the uh, same kind of guy, very ambitious politically. And what's striking about Sambalat and Tobiah is that they are not only... Gentiles who oppose the wall, but they also have Jewish connections. And so that creates a battle from without for Nehemiah, but also a battle from within, as we'll see next week. Those connections that those political leaders have with the Jewish people will come to bear upon Nehemiah and be a struggle for him. And we'll see that next week. And then you have Geshem. He's an Arab, and he's clearly a Gentile. He and his sons ruled a number of Arabian tribes that took over Edom and Moab, which was sort of to the east and to the south of Jerusalem. But they also had influence over in the southwestern part of the country as well, which that was the part that the route to Egypt went through. And so they had great control and power there. So all three of these were men who were political leaders, 
that resided closely to the place where the wall was being built, and they also didn't want it to be built because they considered it a threat to them. And so ultimately, what they have in common is their selfish interests led them to oppose the plan and the people of God. And so they formed what I'm going to call an unholy trinity. Now that's not my term. I think it was Derek Thomas who used that term in his commentary. This unholy trinity that kept coming against Nehemiah. Now, what were their plans? Those are the players, but who, what was the plans that they had to stop Nehemiah? Well, three things. They wanted to bring harm to him. They wanted to scare him or to instill fear in him. And they also wanted to tempt him. And so um, we're going to look at that in just a minute. But isn't that still the way that Satan works today uh, amongst God's people? You know, we as uh, American Christians maybe don't feel the harm part of it as much as other Christians do around the world. But still, nonetheless, uh, all three of those are strategies of Satan against the church. So the first thing we see is the harm. Look at verses 2 through 4. Samballad and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Onan. Um, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Now, as we open this section, they say, come and let us meet together. I mean, it seems like very friendly conversation. Hey, let's get together and, and talk. Let's, let's counsel together. But if you knew anything about the places that is mentioned here, you would know that it's like saying, hey, let's get together and meet out here in the middle of nowhere. Okay, and let's talk. Okay, then they give a little bit different meaning to, to what we read in the text. It's sort of like, let's say, let's get together on a backcountry road in the middle of Kansas and let's talk, right? You go, okay, this is a setup, that's for sure. Let's get together in a place where the only witnesses are cows, okay? <laughs> There's no houses around. Let's meet there. And, and you would know that that would be a perfect place for an ambush. Well, well, Nehemiah could tell what was going on. And so we read at the end of verse 2, he says, but they intended to do me harm. He knew, he knew exactly what he could do, what, what was happening. But not only did Nehemiah smell a trap, but he was also a man of resolve in doing the work of the Lord. And so we read in verse 3 where he says, and I sent messengers to them, said, saying, am I doing a great work and I cannot come, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? You see, we read in verse one that the wall was completed, but the doors hadn't been hung yet. And so Nehemiah needed to do this. So why would Nehemiah stop doing the work of the Lord? Why would he concern himself with these personal matters at the peril of God's work? But Samballot and Geshem were persistent and they sent a messenger not once not twice not three times but four times and every time Nehemiah answered the same way brothers and sisters one of Satan's tactics to destroy ministry is to wear us down and I know that there are some of you that are here today 
that you have felt wave upon wave upon wave of trials or temptations and other things. And Satan oftentimes does that to wear us down, you know, to, to uh, cause us to get our eyes off the work of the Lord and, and the character of who our God is and what he is doing in the world today and to begin to become internally focused upon our own worries and our own trials and our own difficulties. And if he can just get us discouraged, he can get us away from the work of the Lord. Well, Samballat sends a messenger a fifth time in verse 5, which he brings, which will bring us to our second point, uh, but, uh, uh, or our second tactic uh, to stop Nehemiah. And that is that he was seeking to scare Nehemiah. And that's in verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. In the same way, Samballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. Now, it's very intriguing that it's an open letter. I know we oftentimes see that on social media where people will write these open letters to the church or whatever. And oftentimes it's a time where they sort of blast everybody, you know, uh, for whatever they think the evil is that's happening at that point. But uh, the whole point of an open letter is, is that it wouldn't be sealed and delivered to just one person, but it's something that everybody could read, that that they could see. So this letter was an open letter, which meant that it would have been known to, to everybody, to all the public, to the people. It, it would uh, be read in such a way that it would seek to bring peer pressure upon Nehemiah to sort of twist his arm, to sort of bend his knee to do the will of Samballat and Gersom. Gersom. Um, but we also, uh, and so we see that in verse 6. It is written, it is reported among the nations, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become king. And not only that, but Geshem sort of adds his voice to the accusations. You know, he's like, yeah, he, he's heard that as well. And, and, uh, and so he's sort of piling on what the report is. And not only him, but it says all the nations, the whole world knows this. To be true, and and now the Jewish people know this to be true as well. You see, Samballat and Tobiah or uh, Geshem wanted the people to ask Nehemiah, "Is this what you're up to? Is this really your plan all along? You wanted to re for us to get to rebuild the wall so that you could become king? Is this the motive that you've had all along?" They wanted to cast doubt and fear in in the minds of the people. And brothers and sisters, Satan Satan can oftentimes do that as well he can pile up the accusations all he wants in our minds and oftentimes he does that when he comes to us to attack us in our thoughts and that's why the bible talks about how we need to take every thought captive right but he does that he oftentimes doesn't come just once or twice but he oftentimes comes many times to bring those accusations against us but we need to understand that no matter how much Satan piles on the accusations against us, a well-documented and supported lie is just that. It's a lie. And it doesn't matter how much and how persistent a person or a being such as Satan uh, per, um, says that lie, it's still not true. And so it's so important that we know the truth of what God tells us 
in his word. Uh, and Jesus said in John 8.31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's so important that we know the truth of God's word uh, to combat the lies that Satan oftentimes brings against us. Well, so you have this open letter that is here to sort of put pressure upon Nehemiah and to cause the people to fear. Um, if you recall last week, uh, we talked about how there were Jews who were opposing other Jews and oppressing them. Uh, um, they were uh, taking advantage of them uh, because some were rich and some were poor. And so uh, Nehemiah stood up for those who were being oppressed. And he called his brothers to obedience to the word of God to care for one another, not to take advantage of one another. Of course, these leaders were trying to twist this to make it sound like Nehemiah was doing that so that he could become king. Even though at the end of verse or chapter 5, verse 19, we see that uh, Nehemiah's motives were very pure. They, he was doing these things for because he cared for the people. Well, the accusation goes on in verse 7, and it says, And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Um, and then Sambalat says, The problem with this, Nehemiah, is... And now the king, he's talking about the king of Persia, will hear of these reports. And so Sam Ballot says, so let us get together and let's talk about this. In other words, let me help you fix this problem uh, that you have. And oftentimes, isn't it true that Satan comes and he whispers into our ears in this way? He comes in very subtle ways. Let me help you. You're in a pickle. You have these things going on in your life. I can help you with this. I can fix this. You just need to do uh, what I'm saying. And so what we have those temptations that come our way. Well, what happens in that moment is what we see with Nehemiah. In that moment, they're seeking to scare Nehemiah in, in a form of, of compromise rather than being a man of conviction as he is. But Nehemiah recognizes the enemy's ploys for what they are. In verse 8, we read, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for they are invented for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking that their hand will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. You see what Nehemiah does in that moment is he looks to the Lord and he prays to them. And then finally, we read the, the third way that they're seeking to oppose Nehemiah, and that's through temptation in verses 10 through 14. The temptation comes through uh, someone who is a supposed friend of Nehemiah. And he describes it in verse 10 that he goes to the house of Shemaiah. And Shemaiah was someone who had a physical condition that prevented him from leaving the house, okay? And this is oftentimes how temptations work, brothers and sisters. They don't always make sense, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, there's still a temptation. Shemaiah suggested Nehemiah, let's meet inside the temple. In other words, I can't leave my house because I have this physical restraint. But let's meet in the temple of the Lord. That doesn't even make sense. But still, he says that. And it, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, it's sort of like saying, hey, let's go to church and talk. 
But the problem is, is that Shemaiah is suggesting something that's contrary to God's will. That, uh, that they meet in the place where Nehemiah is not allowed to go. Even as governor, he is not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where only the high priests were allowed to go. And what Shemaiah is trying to do is to get Nehemiah to disobey God and sin and therefore ruin Nehemiah's reputation. We see that in verse 13. And thankfully, Nehemiah turns to the Lord in prayer. And Nehemiah replies to Shemaiah, he says, but I, in verse 11, But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I uh, could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. You see, there's both a, a positive and a negative here. He's saying, he asked, do you think that I'm a coward? You think that I'm going to run away from what God's calling me to do? And sort of the implied answer is, no! And, and then on a negative way, on the other hand, Nehemiah makes himself kind of small. He, he humbles himself. He sees himself as, as he properly is. And he says, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He didn't say, well, I'm the governor. I should be able to do whatever I want. He didn't let his pride get the best of him. But he humbly walked before the Lord. And he knew that God had designed certain places uh, and certain people to, to go in the temple and others not to do so. And so Nehemiah discerned that these words of a friend, I use that word loosely, did not come from God. And so in Nehemiah 14, he prays. And uh, we see that there were also false prophets who prophesied in order to make Nehemiah afraid. You know, I, I, I think oftentimes uh, what we see here are a number of things. First of all, the strength and numbers of those who oppose Nehemiah. I told you earlier, there's strength in numbers. Uh, and that's true, but sometimes there's strength in numbers in those who oppose us. And even as Christians, as we have those who stand against us, even other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are seeking to follow the Lord, if we are walking in holiness, if we are following the Lord and obeying Him and doing the things He says, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are not necessarily walking in holiness, you know, it may be that the light that shines in our lives may make those Christians feel uncomfortable, and so they come against us. And so they, they seek to, to act as a friend to us, to give us, quote-unquote, godly counsel, when in reality they're seeking to dissuade us from walking in righteousness as God calls us to do. So the strength in numbers of those who oppose Nehemiah. Satan is persistent in his opposition of God's people. He uses many means to discourage and to tempt us. But I also want us to see that Satan has a number of strategies that he uses against us. And, and as C.S. Lewis says in his Screwtape Letters, if Satan uses one strategy against us and it doesn't work, then he merely shifts to a different strategy. And one way to say it is, is if, if Satan can't come in through the front door because it's locked, he'll go in through the back door. If the back door is locked, then Satan will come in through the window. And if that's locked, he's going to keep trying. He's going to keep prowling around. Satan is often persistent in his temptations and his accusations and his strategies to undo the people of God. 
And that's why 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter describes Satan as a never-sleeping lion. He's always prowling, always studying the people of God like we would a book to figure out where are the cracks, where he can get in, where are the pieces of armor that we haven't put on, which door or window of your life is unlocked where he might get in. What in your life do you like so much that you do not want to bring it under the scrutiny of God's word because you don't want to lose risking it? It may be your entertainment. You're not careful to scrutinize the entertainment in your life because you don't really want God to say you can't watch those things or do those things. Maybe it's your recreation. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. Maybe it's your relationship with others. But those are all opportunities that Satan has to get into. Those are cracks that he has to get into um, to tempt us. And, and while none of these things that I mentioned are wrong in and of themselves, are they done in conformity with God's Word? That's the question. Are there cracks of ungodliness and compromise in our lives that we leave open for Satan to take advantage of? Satan's always looking. He's always studying. He's always trying. He's always prowling. And Satan also knows that there's strength in numbers. But there's a different kind of strength uh, found in the people of God. And that brings us to our second point. Um, but before we say that, um, I do want to make this point. Um, Satan comes on strongly to us because really he has no power over us if we're in Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Satan cannot make you do anything. He can tempt you. He can intimidate you. He can um, seek to influence you in some ways. But he cannot make you do anything. Now, he is masterful in what he does. And he can oftentimes influence us in certain ways that are contrary to what God does. But he is persistent in imposing us, and that should remind us that he does so because he can't just outright make us do something because we are in Christ. And so we need to remember that and not be discouraged as Satan comes to us. But instead, we must do as we're going to talk about in the second point. We must turn to the Lord in prayer for protection. You see, God's people pray for protection. Now, where does Nehemiah turn when the wolves are circling? Uh, when this unholy trinity opposes him, he turns to the Lord. And we see several prayers that Nehemiah has. In verse 9, we read, For all they wanted to frighten us, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And then Nehemiah prays at the end of verse 9, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, we've mentioned that before, but I want you to know um, that I think we all have prayed that prayer before. I know I have prayed that prayer in my life when we feel weak and out of control, uh, when we feel that we're undone um, by Satan's temptations and by his trials. You know what it's like uh, for your resolve to be weak for those times, to want to just give up and to give in. And so we pray, oh God, 
strength of my hands. What a beautiful plea when you think about it. It's a plea for, for God to intervene because we know that we are weak. It's in Nehemiah's way of recognizing that strength is not found in numbers or one's own abilities in life. Instead, the strength that we have comes from God. It comes from the Holy Trinity that was there to save us. It's so easy, especially when we're young, uh, to think that we have such strength. I mean, I was reading just this week in, in my scripture reading, Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men is their strength. And we have a lot of young people in our congregation. And it's so easy for us to feel that we're, well, we're young, we're vital, we're strong. But as Isaiah reminds us, even youth shall fail and or shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our real strength comes from the Lord. And so Nehemiah, knowing his own weakness, asked God for strength and power to remain faithful. And it is in those times that we must look to the Lord that we might be strong. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. Our culture operates off the mistaken philosophy of evolution. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But we really come from the philosophy of evolution that espouses the survival of the fittest. And so we don't want to show any kind of weakness because we are to be strong. That's those who are successful are those who are strong. Weakness is equated with extinction. You'll be passed up if you show weakness. But it's interesting that as you look at what God says in his word, it's quite a different picture. You know, we, we know Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast of all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Can you imagine saying that? I am content with weaknesses, with insults. I am content with hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we turn to the Lord. You see, it is in the weakness in our lives that often becomes the stage upon which the grace and the strength of God is made evident and gloriously displayed. It's when people see the glory of God in us. And that's why we read in the Bible to rejoice in our weakness. The last uh, prayer that Nehemiah prays, I'm not, I'm not going to say a lot about the end of verse 14. Uh, he, he says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You see, the first prayer was a prayer for Nehemiah himself, that God would strengthen him. The second prayer is not really so much for himself as it is to pray against his enemies. Now, we've talked about this in the last several weeks about imprecatory prayers. 
And the Psalms have imprecatory prayers where you're praying God's judgment upon God's enemies. And that's appropriate to do. This is a category that, that we should uh, exercise. Now, I know as New Testament Christians, oftentimes, you know, we, we've been taught, well, you know, you need to pray for those who persecute you. And we ought to do that. But there's also nothing wrong, and, and it should be, that we should pray that God would stand against his enemies, that they would fail. There are wicked and evil people that we should pray God's judgments upon. And Christians should and can pray along these lines um, because really what they're asking for God to do is just to remember, to, that God re would remember who he is, that God would remember what he said, and that God would act consistently according to his character and his word um, as he deals with these people. Maybe another way to put that is that our hope is grounded upon what God has promised to do in his word. And God uh, has, has done that and will continue to do that. And we see the Lord doing that even um, in the cross. God deals his justice uh, through his son. Well, brothers and sisters, um, we still face these temptations. We still face these trials that Satan brings our way. I mean, just like with Christ. Christ was tempted in every way as we are. Um, and we must never forget that. We must never forget that we have enemies, that our enemy never sleeps, that there will, they will always be studying you. They will always be looking for cracks in the walls and the holes in, in your life to seek to get a foothold uh, to tempt you. But you are also... You have one who is stronger than your foe. First John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. True strength comes in numbers, but it comes in the Holy Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as we walk in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are weak, and there's no shame in that. It is at the point that you recognize your weakness against the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, the devil, and the world, that you are able to actually become strong as you cry out to the triune God. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, O oh God, strengthen my faith. But now, O oh God, strengthen my heart. But now, O oh God, strengthen my resolve. Amen. Let us pray. Let's take just a few moments and reflect upon the word of the Lord and silently respond to God appropriately. Almighty and powerful God, who is also our loving Father, 
Uh, we come this morning, Lord, to, to thank you for the scripture, to remind us that our enemy is powerful, and he is great, and he is cunning and, and persistent in his opposition of God and of his church. But Lord, let us not lose heart. God, strengthen your people to know that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And that, God, that we can turn to you in those times of temptation, in those times where Satan is spewing his lies into our minds. God, in those times where he is coming like the, the waves of the ocean against us constantly, piling on one accusation upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another. I especially want to pray this morning, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have struggled this week. And who have fallen into sin. And Satan has been condemning them. And Satan has been spewing out that they are worthless. That they keep calling themselves Christians. And yet how could they claim the name of Christ? By the way that they act. Oh Lord let them turn to you. And to know true forgiveness. That they are fully forgiven. In Jesus Christ. And let them, Lord, enjoy the blessing of abiding in you this week. Oh God, may you cause us to stand firm as we trust in you. God, cause us to cry out to you. And in those times when the waves keep coming and the temptations keep coming and the trials keep coming, help us to abide in you in prayer. Help us, O oh Lord, to abide in you, in your word, as we read the truth of what's real in our lives and not what Satan keeps telling us. Help us, O oh God, to not only stand firm against such trials, but Lord, let us be like Nehemiah, who continues the work of the Lord, not giving up. Lord, continuing to be godly parents, continuing to be a godly witness at work. God continuing to uh, share with others the hope that comes only through Jesus Christ. Lord, may you work through your church that is weak to proclaim who you are. Oh, we thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.